Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 58, Quran, Surah 102, at Takathor, the rivalry in world increase. Rivalry in world increase distracts you until you come to the graves. No, but you will come to know. No, but you will come to know. No, would that you knew now with a sure knowledge, for you will behold hellfire. Yes, you will behold it with sure vision. Then, on that day, you will be asked concerning pleasure. And now, the Arabic, as recited by Saad al-Ghamdi. ألهاكم التكاثر حتى زرتم المقابر كلا سوف تعلمون ثم كلا سوف تعلمون كلا لو تعلمون علم اليقين لترون الجحيم ثم لترونها عين اليقين ثم most of you know the name Michael Jordan. Not just basketball lovers or sports fans, not just Americans, and not just people from Chicago, which is a place where he is revered to an extreme degree, not surprisingly. And especially so by those Chicagoans who were in my generation. The, those of us who were fortunate enough to just be young boys when the Chicago Bulls won six championships and just tore everybody up. Michael Jordan is held up as a model of some very American values. That would be things like competitiveness, hard work, a constant drive to be the best at absolutely anything you're doing. And I mean anything. Michael Jordan had basketball talent. For sure. He had natural talent and coordination and being six foot six, you can't teach that. But he would have been a mediocre player or maybe an average player if he didn't have that ceaseless competitive drive. And he had it in such an extreme degree. I haven't really seen it quite to the same level in any athlete since. Now, that was the recipe for the greatest athlete who ever lived. And that relentless drive made him rise above all his competitors in what I think was the greatest era of the NBA ever. These names, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal kind of toward the end, Karl Malone and John Stockton, all of these people vanished before the greatness of Michael Jordan. What you just heard is the standard narrative when it comes to Michael Jordan. What you'll hear from documentaries, from ESPN, from casual sports fans. These aspects that I just mentioned of Michael Jordan's personality, they're always presented in a positive light. So just to have some fun with this, and even to heap a little sort of secular blasphemy on the people of my own hometown here, 
let me offer a contrarian take on Michael Jordan, which is related to the Sora, <laughs> the, the subject Sora here, I promise. You know, and Mike, Michael, if you're listening for some reason, I seriously doubt it. But uh, if you are, don't get me wrong. I love you. Thanks for the memories. But just to pierce the legend a little bit, or at least to have some fun with it. Let's say the Quran had been written in the 1990s and in Chicago, you know, or in many other places, too. It was a worldwide phenomenon. But had that been the case, the subject of this surah might have been Michael Jordan. Now, let me say right off the bat, I'm not saying Michael Jordan is evil. I don't know Michael Jordan. I have no idea about his spiritual life or anything like that. I'm not even really talking about Michael Jordan, the person. This is more Michael Jordan, the concept. You know, more about Jordan-like behaviors and priorities. And how God can make you see something from a very different angle. And that the qualities which impress the world are not always the qualities which impress God. So, yes, Michael Jordan was a champion. He was great at basketball. And he really drove himself in other things, like baseball and golf and anything he played. But what about the other things? What about the actually important things? You know, all that effort was for what exactly? All that all-consuming drive. What did it get him? Got him money and prestige. Now, that's great, and it impressed the world, certainly impressed women. But ultimately, going way in the future, to what end? To what end was all this effort on an eternal timeline? Just money and prestige? Did it even bring an ounce of happiness, this compulsive drive? What about peace? By all evidence, he never had very much of that either. No matter what he accomplished, it was never enough. Not for Jordan and really for anyone with that personality. You may know someone like this. Now, that's wonderful if you are his coach. And if you're anyone else who can use him for your money or career advancement or marketing. But what about at just the simple human level. You see the trap here. If nothing is ever enough, hasn't this poor guy just sentenced himself to a life of eternal poverty? And I don't mean poverty in the ascetic spiritual way. I mean a treadmill that you are sentenced to run on forever and ever and ever, and all the while going nowhere ultimately dying on a treadmill, drowning in dissatisfaction and wasted effort. So as I got a little older, a little wiser, thought a little more about it, I eventually came to recognize Michael Jordan not as a role model, but rather as a cautionary tale on obsession, almost a Captain Ahab of sports. I see similar things in past greats, too, that I used to revere, like Jerry Rice in American football and Pete Rose in baseball. Those are names mostly known only to Americans, thus I use the Michael Jordan example. But 
they too were all-time greats who don't know. Jerry Rice was great. And Pete Rose was just a whole other level of great. And born with a relentless drive to succeed. But they seemed, ultimately, to be unhappy people. If you know a similar player in another sport, feel free to use that person in this example too. So God knows best. And I'm not pretending to actually know what is in someone else's mind or heart. You know, he very well might be working tirelessly on the status of his soul. I don't really know. But just bear with me for this example. And also keep in mind that we all do this to some extent. I do it. You do it. Everyone does it. It's almost impossible to stay in perfect balance between worldly and spiritual concerns. It's impossible, really, for most people. Me included. Especially me. So just think, if this seemingly great man is, ultimately, and contrary to the common view, really just an unhappy, giant fool of a man. What if the priorities of the world and what he is praised for are completely backward, as they often seem to be? You know, what if God doesn't care at all for what's in Michael's trophy case? What if God was watching the Bulls play the Pistons or the Lakers or the Knicks or whoever, and instead of seeing great men squaring off, he was actually chuckling as these silly kids climbed all over each other to be the best at throwing a ball into a hoop. Now, back to ancient Mecca. Ancient Mecca did not have basketball, or anything we would recognize as a sport, I don't think. Maybe fighting, if that counts, but still. The, the spirit of the NBA, the spirit of Michael Jordan here, was still represented in the spirit of pointless rivalries and the petty concerns of the petty Meccans in Muhammad's time, who fought fiercely in matters of similar triviality. There was no basketball, but you don't need a round orange ball for an all-consuming and silly rivalry, and this sura appears to target one specific petty rivalry of the time, addressing one of the more ridiculous feuds that Muhammad probably witnessed. Now, there were two clans, the Abd Manaf and the Sam. Now, they were in the middle of a ridiculous feud. Not really a hot feud, let's call it a cold feud, you know, like the Cold War. They weren't killing each other, but they were embroiled in a bizarre contest of pride and trying to count who had more chiefs and members, and eventually, which one was bigger going back to the beginning of time. In other words, they were taking a census of the long dead to add a tally to the tribe's population in the present. And really, is that not exactly like what happens when you bring together someone from Los Angeles and someone from Boston and ask them to talk about the Lakers and the Celtics? This was the 7th century version of a sports rivalry. So think about how all that looks to someone like Muhammad, who is someone who understands the short time span and the ultimate irrelevance of earthly things compared to the hereafter. How silly this must have seemed. They're making all this effort toward things that do not matter. And not only that, 
they are ignoring the most critical thing. These people were completely ignorant of God. Completely ignorant, not only of God, but also his values and the possibility of eternal life and the possible major downside to eternal life as well. So Muhammad was like a man seeing a building on fire, but he's the only one who can see it. So he screams to the people inside, but only a few listen to him. Most continue to go about their business inside, cleaning the floors and tending to the decorations, maybe having a drink or sleeping, just doing the mundane things. And all the while, the fire is closing in. And many don't even feel the heat. Now, you'll see this theme many, many times after this. This is Muhammad trying to shake the people out of their earthly stupor, trying to smack the people out of this world's hypnotic spell of constant distraction because they can't see the true reality that he sees. These silly creatures are in horrible danger, and someone needs to tell them. Otherwise, they will meet the grave very soon, and quite possibly something worse. And yet, they continue to major in the minors, to fight with each other for worldly things, almost as a way to distract themselves from ever thinking about important things. And really, it's not just certain people. It's human nature. It's everyone. And we tend to forget about important things until they're staring you right in the face, and until it's too late. And similarly, most people don't think about the afterlife until death is actually staring them in the face. Incidentally, the companions of Muhammad called this surah the surah of the grave, because that really is the key element here. You know, it's about the distractions that make us not think about the grave, not think about death. Even though, really, for someone's long-term well-being, it's the most important thing you could possibly be thinking about. So the grave isn't really in the title, obviously. Now, why is this? I used the term, the rivalry in world increase, simply because it's kind of the standard translation. But you also see things like vying for increase, greedily striving for increase, and many others. In Arabic, the word in question is al-taka thor. Now that's in the title, but also in the first line. And it means growth, multiplication, to increase. The verbal root is kaf, ra, tha, which are the simplest forms of the English K, R, and TH. It means basically the same as more complex forms of the word, like to outnumber, to exceed in number. Now, in the first line of the surah, the word before this word is the verb for distract, and then with a second pronoun, second person pronoun suffix. So basically, it says, you are distracted by growth and multiplication. And from the context, here we are clearly talking about worldly gain, which is why you see some of the translations I mentioned earlier. 
so that phrase that you were distracted by growth and multiplication that phrase is addressing the general concept of worldly increase but really also the specific case of worldly increase that the two families are actually fighting about they are literally competing in multiplication in this case people so how many people has our tribe created what have our numbers multiplied to now not only is this silly it's quite literally backward looking it's about the past why take pride in a past that you had nothing to do with and in glories of the past which have nothing to do with you now, these are the types of things that distract us until the great leveler which is the grave comes along and this is when the virtual reality goggles that we are constantly wearing this is when they come off and you see the world as it truly is there is no electrical alternative reality to obscure the real world here the real world say as mystics see it as the spiritual see it you know because this other stuff in front of you is not the real world the things muhammad was seeing represent the actual real world the spiritual world the eternal world so we have a warning about distractions the presentation of the grave as the moment of truth in line two, two of the surah and then moving on to the inevitable epiphany that everyone will eventually have some much later than others and this is said twice for emphasis and a third time in a slightly different way no but you will come to know no but you will come to know no would that you knew now with a sure knowledge and that thing you see will be the hellfire and it will be seen with a sure knowledge on that day you will be asked about pleasure so what is pleasure the arabic word here is al naim the comfort it's from the verbal root noon ein mean now keep in mind that the middle sound despite the way i probably said it that's not an ah sound it's an ein you know and this word al naim it's not necessarily a pejorative the way it kind of sounds in english this word means comfort like material comfort but the same word is also used for tranquility and a feeling of peace and ultimately it can mean the graceful blessings of god naim allah so you see the genius of the ending here the word itself is both talking about worldly pleasure that is improper while also pointing to the ultimate pleasure the blessings of god so pleasure is not necessarily bad this isn't just a simple denunciation of pleasure but of the earthly things you took pleasure in that you had placed above god because in the afterlife when meeting god these things are irrelevant they are earthly treasures and they will ultimately be consumed like everything else that is unless they are used to build spiritual treasure now this may sound familiar to christian ears and biblical phrases you might uh, have in the back of your head such as 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? But there is an extra element of absurdity here, of the Quran looking at human behavior like a baffled explorer who just walked into a society of apes. You know, it's looking at a ridiculous creature who doesn't really seem to understand or appreciate what is actually important. As uh, in a hadith, Muhammad once said, if the son of Adam had a valley of gold, he would wish it to be two valleys. Now, it's, it's like that. That's part of the sentiment. But again, there's almost a comic futility to this. It's not just greed. It's just the futility of what people are chasing after. Kind of like the, the Mandelbaum family in an old Seinfeld episode. And this is a family that just imagined insults and then attempted great feats of strength to counter the imaginary insults. And in the end, three generations of Mandelbaums end up in the hospital looking like idiots. And they learn nothing. Humans continue in this state, and for far too long. And this Sora talks about the certainty of which man will see the ultimate reality. And there's one more thing I wanted to talk about with this Sura. Um, one thing that it teaches. It's often used to explain in Islam the three types of yakin, which is a word that is mentioned in this Sura. But yakin means certainty of knowledge. As in, how certain are you that you know that? Now, there are generally three types of yakin. One is the certainty in your mind, the certainty of inference, which is things like reason. I think, therefore I am certain. This can be simple physical things like avoiding a giant nest of wasps, but you have never been stung by a wasp. It doesn't really matter if you haven't, but you have been told that it hurts. So just based on that, you know in your mind to stay away. But this also applies to pretty much any area of thought that is limited entirely to the human mind. Like philosophy, for example, is entirely within the mind. And really, most religious certainty is the certainty of the mind. It would be in this category. Now, the second type of yakin, certainty, is certainty by sight. Now, this is even better. Although, we also know your eyes can lie to you all the time, either through optical illusions, deceptive angles, or faulty equipment. But number two is the type of thing that you see. And then there's number three, which is the third and best, the most certain, the most infallible, the most incorruptible type of yakin. It's called hak il yakin. You may recognize the word hak. It means the truth, among other things, and it's one of the many descriptors of God used in the Quran. This is the level of certainty that will be felt in the end, when an individual is flooded with truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this is the type of yakin that is being addressed in this surah. That's the sure knowledge. And when you see the truth, 
when you see it, not with your eyes, but feel it around you, flooding into your spirit, that's when you'll be asked about the value of worldly pleasure, of worldly ambition, of the things you devoted your greatest energies toward. They may have netted you trophies and money and power, but they distracted you from your true mission, from true success, from true peace, from true eternity in paradise with God. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.